Banks scramble for customers' money means greater savings rates and industry anxiety. And I'll talk with Cranes contributor Graham Meyer about arts and culture events for the month ahead, including Shakespeare's Cymbeline. Shakespeare people say, oh, this is a great play. It's like part tragedy, part comedy. And, you know, the fact that it's Shakespeare's maybe 18th best play means that it gets kind of forgotten. But if it were written by another playwright, the Shakespeare connoisseurs say, Everyone would know this play. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Monday, June 26th. Secure your business accounts and start earning more with a WinTrust MaxSafe account. With MaxSafe, you get up to 15 times the standard FDIC personal protection. That's right, 15 times the protection with the liability to secure up to $3.75 million per account holder. Now that's banking as it should be. Call 833-MAX-SAFE to talk with a local WinTrust banker today. That's 833-MAX-SAFE. Peace of mind is just a phone call away. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks. Member FDIC. See FDIC.gov for deposit insurance coverage rules. I'm joined by Graham Meyer, who writes the weekly big ticket column for Cranes, here to talk about can't-miss arts and culture events for the month ahead. Hey, Graham, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me. Oh, always a pleasure. All right. Well, let's talk about all the things coming up. Midsummer Flight. Let's talk about that first. Sure. Midsummer Flight's a theater company. They put on Shakespeare. Uh, they're about 10 years old. And they, you might know them from uh, their winter holiday uh, time productions of Twelfth Night that they do at the Lincoln Park Conservatory. They've started doing that every year. So it's very recognizable. They keep coming back. In the summers, they put on free park Shakespeare, unamplified in the sunlight, and they change up the play every year instead of doing the same play. This year, they're going to do Cymbeline, which is not a super well-known Shakespeare play, but it's sort of a connoisseur's Shakespeare play. I personally have never seen it, but I know Shakespeare people say, oh, this is a great play. It's like part tragedy, part comedy. And you know the fact that it's Shakespeare is maybe 18th best play means that it gets kind of forgotten. But if it were written by another playwright, the Shakespeare connoisseurs say everyone would know this play. So they go six different places, six weekends, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, you can make reservations, which basically gets you on their mailing list. But because it's free, you can also just show up. And I was struck as I was putting listings together for the summer, there aren't as many times that you can have a picnic and see a play as there are have a picnic and see music or things like that. So I wanted to point this out for people. That's right. So this runs July 7th through August 13th. And as you said, it's at different parks. So each one is a different different setting. Yeah, and it jumps all around the city. They're all in the city of Chicago, but it's all around west side, south side, north side. So you have to look at their website to see which weekend is which place. That's a really fun idea. I wonder how much place influences the, the production that night. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I know that they find a picturesque spot always to put things on. And, you know, offstage is just a different part of the park. So, you know, it's very integrated into the park. You're very much feeling the park when you're there. Yeah, I imagine so. All right. Also coming up, Out of Space. Tell me about this. This is on the first and second holes of the Canal Shores Golf Course in Evanston. It's right by the central stop on the purple line of the L. There are several places uh, that you can see music in the summer out 
al fresco. I was picking this one because it's a, a little bit smaller. It's more of a Ravinia vibe than a Lollapalooza vibe. You can bring your picnic. They've got some great acts that uh, you would have trouble getting tickets for in some other places. And they still have tickets as we record this. So probably uh, you would want to go and buy tickets immediately if you're interested. This is July 27th through 30th. I know the 28th is already sold out. Uh, the headliner on the 29th is Regina Spector. And on the 30th, it's Andrew Bird. You know, Andrew Bird's holiday shows always sell out in um, hours after he lists them. So obviously Chicago loves Andrew Bird. Uh, it would be a good, good time to go buy those. It seems like a really nice space. I haven't been to this. It's uh, put on by the Evanston Music Venue Space. That's why it's called Out of Space. And they have great lineups of music, uh, really interesting acts and really interesting people who they have coming to that. And it's sort of their outgrowth of that with slightly bigger name artists than they would most frequently have day in, day out at space. That's really fun to have that at a golf course. I don't know. It feels like you're kind of getting away with something, <laughs> using a golf course in a different way like that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I remember I used to go sledding on a golf course and I always felt like I was getting away with something. So I can totally understand that feeling. Definitely. But speaking of outdoor stuff, tell me about what's coming up at Ravinia. They've got a festival called Breaking Barriers that I find very interesting. They did it last year. It's put on by Marin Alsop, who is the chief conductor of the CSO at Ravinia when they have their residency there. Last year, they did a mini festival for the first time, Breaking Barriers, and it was all about female conductors. They're bringing it back this year, doing Breaking Barriers again, and now it's about female composers. And they've got three days of concentration of it, July 21st through 23rd, where they'll have Gabriela Montero is going to play her own Latin piano concerto with the CSO on July 21st. And the Mexican singer-songwriter Natalia Lafourcade is going to be there on the 22nd. And the Maria Schneider Orchestra, which is a jazz orchestra, will play on July 23rd. And during that time, they've also got panels and master classes and things during the day to go along with the concerts at night. There's a lot of interesting auxiliary events around those concerts. And I also want to point out that Marin Alsop has programmed a bunch of other female composers outside the time of this festival. So it's sort of a CSO residency long commitment to pieces by female composers. One that I particularly want to point out that I think is going to be good is that on July 19th with the CSO, they're doing a Mahler evening. And it's not just Gustav Mahler, who is who you think of when you hear Mahler for classical music, but also Alma Mahler. Gustav's wife wrote songs and the mezzo-soprano Sasha Cook is going to sing those with the CSO on that concert of July 19th. That's so cool. What a neat focus. I love that. And then also cool is like the daytime programming that leads up to the, the nighttime events. That's pretty interesting. So the daytime stuff is also at Ravinia or that's a different venue? It's also at Ravinia uh, in the buildings there, yeah. um, not out on the lawn. Yeah. That's very cool. I, I've, I haven't thought of Ravinia. Uh, just like a golf course, I haven't thought of using Ravinia <laughs> in a different way. Cool. Okay, so then let's talk about the Opera Festival of Chicago, July 6th through 23rd. I'm hoping this will be news to some of my listeners because it's a pretty young festival. Uh, they're now in their third year. They're taking advantage of the relative lack of fully staged opera performances in Chicago in the summer. The lyric season ends usually in March or April for Grand Opera. Um, they're finishing up West Side Story now with the musical, but they're dormant until the fall. 
And Chicago Opera Theater, the second biggest company, usually is all done with all their stuff by April or May. So there's this gap. And um, in previous years, Chicagoans had traveled to St. Louis or Santa Fe or places where there were summer opera festivals, but there hasn't been one in Chicago. This festival is putting on Italian rarities, usually by known composers, and they've really upped the ante in their third year here. They are putting on two fully staged operas and two recitals, one of which is a group recital and one of it, which is the bass Ferruccio Ferlanetto, who is a pretty well-known bass with a long uh, career in opera. And he hasn't given a recital in the U.S. since 2016. And he's also going to be in their, one of their full productions, which is Murder in the Cathedral. It's based on the play by T.S. Eliot. It's not well-known as an opera. I'm excited to see if it's going to be a worthy find as an opera. And they also have another big name, Italian bass, Andrea Silvestrelli is coming. Uh, he's been at the Lyric more recently than Ferlanetto. But I find it kind of funny that this relatively famous Italian operatic bass is only the second most famous Italian bass that's in the summer festival. <laughs> I'm sure that that um, both of those Italian basses have some kind of feeling about that. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> they should have they should have a group recital where it's like a bass off, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> that would be very cool to watch, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay, so again that is July sixth through twenty third. You know, I hadn't really thought about that, but you're exactly right. We do see a lot more opera in the colder months than we do in the summer, for sure. And we do see people traveling to other places to to get their opera fix in the summer. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's true. Sometimes you see concert stuff put on, especially at Ravinia. They've done concert stuff, but not usually staged. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, to be fair, opera costumes are probably very hot and Ooh. heavy. <laughs> so maybe not a summer go-to. Um, all right, well, let's talk about what's happening at the Neo-Futurist Theater. There's always something interesting there. Yeah, this is sort of a fun thing. I feel like I, I'm glad to be pointing out a storefront theater thing on our segments yeah. here. I, I, I try to always cover it in the column, but I don't always find things that I want to highlight for our segment. So I'm really glad to have this one in here. Uh, from July 6th through August 12th, they're going to put on a full-length show. You probably have heard of the Neo-Futurists because they have this long-running show, which is now called The Infinite Wrench. It was born under the name Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind, and it's been going on forever, uh, and it's short plays. The The idea of that is there's you know a chance and uncertainty about which play they'll do in which order, but they're all about two minutes long. Um, and it's late at night and it's, you know, wacky and da-da and it's funny and tragic and it, there's a lot going on with it. So they're putting on a show that's called Elements of Style and it's multifarious in the way of the neo-futurists and it's based on Strunk and White's The Elements of Style, the style guide <laughs> that you probably read, you know, with your uh, pedantic English teacher in high school. Yeah. And they've taken material from the sample sentences in the book and from E.B. White, because White and Strike and White is, of course, E.B. White, who wrote Charlotte's Web and Stuart Little, some things from the corpus of children's literature that E.B. White wrote, and they've made vignettes out of it that are connected with each other, sort of like an episode of Sesame Street, as it was described to me. Okay. And they are doing witty things pulled out and a lot of physical theater stuff. There's newly composed music in it. The actors never speak, but there's captions and projections for the words. 
And it sounds like a really interesting way of approaching this material that you wouldn't think of as theatrical material. And it's in the neo-futurist's clever and quirky way. One thing that one of the creators described to me was one of the famous strunk and white rules is omit needless words. And so they said, all right, our show is called Elements of Style, not the Elements of Style, because we don't need that. (laughs) (laughs) That's so creative. That's really interesting. And the idea that the actors don't speak, but there's captioning and projections to provide words. You know, it seems like there's like this visual storytelling element that, that will be put on in a new way. Yeah, it's definitely going to be cleverly theatricalized. I mean, yeah. if there's one thing you can guarantee from them. They also said that omit needless words sort of applied to that where the actor's not speaking because they said, well, we'll just project it. <laughs> yeah, and it's this is also a late night thing or this is... This no, is this is at normal times, like for a show. I, I can't remember precisely, but you know, seven or eight o'clock, the, the, the normal time. Very good. And again, that is at the Neo Futurist Theater, July 6th through August 12th. All right. Well, thanks so much, Graham. Always a pleasure talking things through with you. It is a pleasure being here. Thank you very much. Coming up, CTA ridership numbers got a boost from Taylor Swift fans. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Listeners of Crane's Daily Gist are invited to join good to great author Jim Collins for a one-day workshop in Chicago on October 17th at Navy Pier. This is a rare opportunity for CEOs and executive teams to spend a day with Jim Collins to understand the application of the good to great concepts and Jim's full body of work on what makes great companies tick. Limited places available. Go to growthfaculty.com to purchase tickets and learn more. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Banks want customers' money in a way that they haven't for more than 15 years. Crane Steve Daniels reported that banks right now are starved for cash, only two years after they had plenty, and they're scrambling for money-making places to stash it. He further noted that adding anxiety to what otherwise would be a straightforward matter of paying enticing enough rates to stay liquid are the failures earlier this year of Silicon Valley Bank and New York's Signature Bank, impelled by depositor runs on both institutions. Brent Tischler, CEO of Community Banking for Evansville, Indiana-based Old National Bank, which has a large presence in Chicago from its 2022 acquisition of First Midwest Bank, told Cranes, quote, as an industry, we've continued to see surge deposit runoff. Also saying, quote, consumer spending continues to be strong and stimulus is starting to burn through. Daniels noted in reporting that for savers, that's a refreshing change after more than a decade in which bank accounts were one of the last places that anyone would look for yield, noting that now no one has to search long for offers of more than 5% on as little as $1,000. And for banks, it's an abrupt end to a long era of near-free money thanks to the Federal Reserve's rapid ramp-up of interest rates to tame inflation. Liquidity is now their top concern even as they face growing worries about future loan defaults, particularly in commercial real estate. Daniels further noted that now with the second quarter about to end, investors and analysts are eager for a fresh look at banks' deposits and other sources of cash to find out how much banks are now paying for the money they lend out, and to find out what percentage of deposits are interest-bearing versus those stashed in demand accounts like checking, which typically don't pay interest. Daniels reported that those banks showing larger-than-expected deposit declines are likely to get punished on Wall Street. Likewise, investors will be pouring over bank 
bank's net interest margins, the difference between what they earn on assets and what they pay for deposits and other funds. Those posting margins, narrowing considerably more than analysts' estimates, are likely to pay a price in the markets. But Daniels also noted that it's not as if bank stocks haven't already sunk. The KBW Nasdaq Bank Index, which tracks banks other than the largest ones like J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America, is down 23 percent so far this year. Publicly traded, locally-based commercial banks, Wintrust Financial and Byline Bancorp are down 19% and 21%, respectively. Daniels also noted that deposit deals available in the Chicago market right now include a 5.35% 11-month CD at Wintrust, the fourth-largest bank by deposits for $1,000 or more not already with the bank. BMO, the second-largest Chicago-area bank by deposits, is offering 4.75% for 12 months. Fifth third, the sixth-largest bank by deposits, is offering 5% for five months and 4.75% for 12 months. Greg McBride, senior vice president and chief financial analyst at Bankrate, told Cranes these sorts of yields haven't been available from banks since about 2016, adding, quote, CDs are back on the radar screen for retirees. For banks, Daniels noted, this competition for cash is more bare-knuckled than it was 15-plus years ago. Then, there weren't as many online banks paying higher rates than their brick-and-mortar competitors could afford to pay. One of those, Riverwoods-based credit card giant Discover Financial Services, is offering 5% on CDs of $2,500 or more over 18 months, a longer term than most commercial banks are willing to do. But Daniels also noted that not every bank feels compelled to pay up for consumers' cash. The largest banks, Chase and Bank of America, for example, benefited from the mini crisis on the industry a few months ago after Silicon Valley Bank failed. Many businesses with deposits at levels well above what is insured by federal regulators moved their cash to institutions like those two, which they view generally as too big to fail. Chase is the largest bank in the Chicago area by deposits, but still has only about a quarter of the market. Bank of America is the third largest. Pinstripes, the Northbrook-based restaurant chain that combines bowling and bocce with Italian food, is going public in a merger with a blank check company at a pro forma enterprise value of about $520 million. The transaction with Banyan Acquisition Group includes an equity investment of more than $20 million for Middleton Partners. That according to a statement on Friday that confirmed an earlier Bloomberg News report. Once the deal with the special purpose acquisition company is completed, Pinstripes will trade on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol PNST. That, according to the statement. Bloomberg noted in reporting that the deal not only follows the SPAC tidal wave that has receded in the past year, but it comes as the long-frozen market for IPOs is just starting to thaw, with listings such as Mediterranean restaurant chain Kava Group leading the way. Banyan chairman Jerry Hyman said the Northbrook-based SPAC initially identified 900 potential merger targets and had what he described as soft interest meetings with 100 of them. It signed non-disclosure agreements with 20 before picking pinstripes, he said. Bloomberg also reported that unlike many of the startups that have gone public either through SPAC mergers or IPOs, Pinstripes is profitable. For 2024, the company is projected to have adjusted EBITDA of 30 to 33 million on revenue of 185 to 195 million, according to the statement. Pinstripes has 13 locations in eight U.S. states and Washington, D.C., four in the Chicago area, with six more under construction in Florida, California, and New Jersey, according to its website. 
Pinstripe CEO Dale Schwartz, who opened the company's first location in 2007 in Northbrook and who will continue to lead the company, said negotiations with Banyan began in earnest three months ago. With the IPO market in the U.S. uncertain at that point, the timing favored a SPAC deal, he said. Banyan, led by CEO Keith Jaffe, raised almost $242 million, including so-called green shoe shares, in January of 2022. With redemptions and following a shareholder vote in April to extend its deadline to complete a merger, the SPAC reportedly has a market value of about $117 million. Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul and five other state AGs are enlisting in the federal government's effort to block the proposed $28 billion acquisition of Horizon Therapeutics by Amgen. In a statement, Raoul's office said it joined an antitrust lawsuit filed by the Federal Trade Commission shortly after the deal was announced in May. Crane's healthcare reporter Catherine Davis reported that in the lawsuit, filed May 16th in Illinois federal court, the agency argues the acquisition would allow California-based Amgen to use its market power to pressure insurers and pharmacy benefit managers to favor two key Horizon drugs, Tepeza, used to treat thyroid eye disease, and Cristexa, which treats gout. Right now, neither has competition, but rivals are expected to come to market over the next few years. Davis noted in reporting that Horizon, which has built a portfolio of drugs for rare diseases, employs 2,000 people globally, including 700 in Deerfield. The company reported $3.6 billion in revenue last year. Other AGs joining the lawsuit include those from California, New York, Minnesota, Washington, and Wisconsin. Raul said in a statement, quote, This proposed pharmaceutical merger would allow Amgen to monopolize the market for certain crucial medications and reduce affordability, access, and choice of drugs for vulnerable patients in Illinois. His statement continued, quote, Preserving competition within the pharmaceutical industry is essential to improving access and affordability, and I will continue to partner with those attorneys general to stop the concerning increase in consolidations that raise health care costs for patients. In a statement to Cranes, a Horizon spokesperson said, quote, It's not uncommon for states to join an FTC complaint in merger litigation, and Illinois joining the complaint does not change the timeline or our defense of the federal litigation. Amgen told Cranes that it still expects the deal to close by mid-December, adding that it remains, quote, very excited about what Amgen and Horizon can do together for patients around the world suffering from rare diseases. Davis noted in reporting that the FTC's lawsuit is the first challenge to a pharmaceutical merger in recent memory and also raises unconventional anti-competitive concerns. Typically, the FTC has looked to block deals where there is concern about market concentration. And in this case, the FTC argues the two companies will wield too much power over other healthcare industry players. As Crane's John Aspland previously reported, the deal's failure would leave Horizon two options. Find a new buyer the FTC would approve of or find ways to grow as an independent company. Scrapping the deal would also cost Horizon CEO Tim Walbert the opportunity to reap a massive windfall. Cranes previously estimated that Walbert would make about $150 million if the sale to Amgen goes through. Crane's Marcus Gilmer noted that it's been three weeks since Taylor Swift's three-night run at Soldier Field and her visit is proving to be a gift that keeps on giving. 
CNN reporter Nathaniel Meyerson looked at how SWIFT's Blockbuster Eras Tour has spiked local transit ridership in cities on her itinerary. And that includes Chicago, where Taylor Swift's fans helped the CTA hit a post-pandemic high. On Tuesday, the CTA reported that her Sunday, June 4th show, quote, generated more than 43,000 additional bus and rail rides at the Roosevelt Station and on the 146 Inner Lakeshore, Michigan Express Route. Gilmer also noted that alongside city festivals, favorable weather, and a pair of Wrigley Field shows by Dead & Company featuring surviving members of the Grateful Dead, those CTA-going Swift fans helped the agency tally 5.63 million riders the week of June 4th through June 10th, which is the agency's highest weekly total since the COVID-19 pandemic began locally in March of 2020. Meyerson noted on CNN that Chicago is hardly alone. Swift fans also spiked transit numbers during her tour's stop in Atlanta, Philly, and New Jersey. And hotels benefited in big ways, too. Choose Chicago reported that between fans in town for Swift and attendees of the American Society of Clinical Oncology's annual meeting at McCormick Place, hotel occupancy rates averaged 98.6% on Friday, June 2nd and Saturday, June 3rd which were the first two nights of Swift's three-night soldier field run. A representative for Choose Chicago told Cranes that specific economic impact data for Swift's shows were not available, but did note that between Swift and the convention, hotel revenue for Friday and Saturday nights of that weekend totaled $39 million. And for reference, Swift's two shows next weekend, Friday, June 30th and Saturday, July 31st in Cincinnati, are projected on their own to generate $48 million in economic impact for that city. That's more than the expected $44 million a typical June 30th weekend, including home games for the Cincinnati Reds and FC Cincinnati, the city's MLS franchise, would generate locally. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's contributor, Graham Meyer. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.